Yes, keep your Bibles right where you're at. Matthew 17, 1 through 8. That will be our text for this morning. I think it's just a little more handy to um, have the text read before I come up so that I don't have to go back through and read it again and then try to explain it. I'm trying to be a little bit efficient, but Carol just read the text that we're going to be looking at. Thanks for that, Carol. Um, We are continuing in our study of the work of Christ. Uh, That's the series that we've been in. It's like 11 weeks. I think we're on our fifth week now. Um, Oh, let's see. Last Sunday, we looked at his temptation in the wilderness and many of the implications uh, of what that is and what that meant and how that applies to us. You can always go back online if you weren't here and, and listen to our messages. They're all posted on there, usually by Monday or Tuesday at the latest. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at his transfiguration. The transfiguration of Christ took place near the end of his ministry, whereas his temptation happened near the beginning. What that means, basically, is that we are bypassing a lot of, of his ministry. We're kind of fast-forwarding way, way forward and bypassing a lot of what he did in between those two events, in between the temptation and the um, transfiguration. Now, you have to understand the goal of this series is not to flesh out and to focus on every single thing that Christ did in his work. It's been to sort of highlight the primary events and things that happened during his time on earth, uh, during his incarnation. And so that's why we can kind of fast forward or move here or move there. We're not trying to look at everything that he did. We may, in the future, work our way through a gospel, and then we, you know, we will be able to see so much more. Uh, but for now, this series has been about examining kind of the bigger things that he did during his ministry, or I would call it the primary events of his life and ministry. Uh, between his temptation, you kind of have these bookends, if you will. You have the temptation, you have the transfiguration. Between those uh, two grand events, he spent his time uh, preaching the coming kingdom, preaching the gospel. He, he spent his time healing the sick. He spent his time even uh, at some point, or not at some point, but in some instances, raising the dead. And uh, so those are the things that he did between those two bookends, if you will. One of Christ's chief responsibilities during the incarnation, during his time on earth, was to show forth the glory of God. And he did that uh, during his ministry, and I would say especially at the transfiguration. So the transfiguration right off the bat has to do with him showing the glory of God, which really essentially is his own glory. So that's kind of a primary thing that the transfiguration has to do with, but it does represent much, much more as we will soon see. We're going to focus on kind of all of the implications of it, or if not all of them, many of them. Uh, Before diving into the message, into the text, because we're going to take that text and break it down line by line, I think it's befitting to pray one more time. Father, um, we just ask, Lord, that you would, I don't know, maybe maintain the soberness of this moment where everyone's sort of locked in on you and, and paying close attention and quiet in heart and spirit. And uh, just, just keep us humble before you now and maintain this same trajectory where we're listening, where we're wanting to learn, where we're wanting to grow. And, and not at my command or because of my words at all, but because of your word. Uh, we pray that you would send the Spirit in such a way that he would take 
the very word of God and apply it directly to our hearts and that we would, a little bit more of us would be chiseled away and a little bit more of Christ would be formed in us. Sanctify us today. If there'd be anyone here that has yet to come to know Christ, I pray that you would, that you would put them in a relationship with Christ, that you would regenerate, illuminate, save them and, and give them the joy of salvation and put them on this wonderful new path that only you can do. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us, and we pray that you would uh, speak to us now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, let's pick it up at verse 1, right? Chapter 17 of Matthew. Have you noticed, has anyone else noticed how much time we've been spending in this series in the book of Matthew? Uh, we've been getting a lot of our information from the Gospel of Matthew, and, and I really do love the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, if I was going to teach through one, it might be that one. I taught through some of it at Big Valley, but only got to the Beatitudes, and then, and then I uh, got called to plant RHC, so I got out of there. Um, verse 1, let's look at it together. I'll read it. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother. So that's James's brother, John. Those are the sons of thunder, uh, the fishing uh, brothers, if you will. Uh, James and John, his brother, uh, the, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So for these guys, basically, these two brothers and Peter and Jesus head up to this mountain. It's interesting how it says led them up. You know, we, we looked last week or, or uh, yeah, we looked last week at the, at the temptation and Jesus was led by the Spirit. And here we see Jesus leading these men up to this mountain and they were by themselves. As Christ was winding up his public ministry and, and setting his face to go to Jerusalem, because that's really the next phase of his ministry. It's kind of the Passion Week and all of that. We look at those things every year. Uh, knowing full well the suffering and death that awaited him there, he departed uh, from the group or, or the crowd that was always kind of surrounding him. He departed from that whole kind of ministry environment where all these things were happening. He departed from that to a high mountain with these three disciples that are mentioned here, Peter, James, and John, those two brothers. Now these three men were... I would say, within Jesus' immediate circle of leadership. Uh, you would have Peter who, it, we would probably say that Peter was kind of his right-hand man. And then right next to Peter were these two brothers, James, who's the older, and then John, who is the apostle, John, who wrote the gospel. And so um, you have, these guys are kind of in that inner circle of leadership of Jesus. They're kind of his right-hand sort of dudes, they're closer to him than the other disciples are or were. And like I said, Peter sort of filled that top spot. Uh, now, which mountain did they go to and essentially sort of climb or ascend or go up? Uh, it's, it's really not clear in Scripture. There's, there's several mountains that are mentioned in Scripture, but there's nothing mentioned here in this Gospel account or over in any, any of the others. It's not clear what mountain they went to but you know whenever I read these things I'm always thinking well is it like Mount Sinai is it Horeb is it you know is it uh, Hermon you know which mountain is it and the likely choice would be a mount called Mount Tabor now a lot of theologians and historians reject that notion but I think that it makes sense that it was Mount Tabor because it's about I'd say it was about five miles southeast of Nazareth 
And what that means is that it's in the primary region where Jesus did the majority of his ministry. And that'd be central Israel, if you will. And so, you know, you have, um, you know, Sinai to the south, you have, and that's the mountain where Moses met with God. So that's an interesting choice if you go with that, but that's kind of down there. And then Hermon is up, way up to the north, right on the border of Syria. And, um, and it's probably, it, well, actually, I believe it is the tallest mountain in Israel. It's, in fact, it's the only mountain in Israel that actually has a ski resort. So, and, you know, the funny thing is, is that it's, it's like, you know, 9,000 feet of elevation, uh, uh, um, elevation, thank you, I was going to say evolution, you know, it kind of became that tall over time, uh, right? So elevation, the elevation is like 9,000. Now, I don't know about you, but we don't even get snow on anything at 9,000 around here, do we? I mean, we've got some stuff up here. Do we get snow at 9? I guess we do. We do? Okay, so that can happen. I'm just thinking 9,000 is not very tall. When you've gone to Colorado, you've been in Colorado Springs, you're surrounded by, you know, 15,000 foot mountains at all times, and there's always snow on them. And, but this is, you know, to me, I don't know, by standards, it would be kind of a small mountain, but I don't know if it was that mountain. Some say that it was Hermon. I, I don't know if it was, because it's way, way up north. It would be between Tyre and Sidon, which were way up at the north part, so... I don't th- he didn't spend a whole lot of time in that region, so I think that uh, Tabor is probably the, the likely mountain. Now, what did they do or what happened when they ascended and went up on this mountain? Like I said, I think it was, it was Tabor, which is probably roughly four or 5,000. It's really feet. It's probably more like a really tall foothill, if you will, and it's kind of out on its own. But what did they do when they went up on the top of this thing. Look at verse 2. This is where it gets interesting. It says, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So verse 2 tells us that Christ was transfigured before these disciples' eyes, before Peter James and John. He was transfigured. What does transfigured mean? Because has, I mean, maybe you've heard of that word because you've studied the Bible or read the Bible, but that's not, I don't think that's a word that we use in our vocabulary very often. I I don't use it. I I wouldn't say that, well, you know, he was, this guy over here and he was sort of, you know, we don't use that word or this thing was transfigured before our eyes. It's not a word that we use. It's not a popular word for us. So so I think that it makes sense to talk about what it means. What is it? Well, transfigured comes from the Greek uh, verb metamorphu, metamorphu, which means to change into another form. And yes, we get the English word metamorphosis from it. We speak of metamorphosis, or when we speak of metamorphosis, we're, we're thinking of a, a caterpillar you know, spinning a cocoon and, and later emerging as a beautiful butterfly or as a, you know, moth or whatever. I guess they do that as well. So transfiguration is fundamentally an alteration, a change of outward form. This is what happened to Christ when they went up to the top of Tabor, if that was the mountain or whatever mountain they were on. He kind of metamorphosized into another form, if you will. No, not a butterfly or an insect. But he was changed. His appearance was changed. He metamorphosized. 
That's what took place. Now, verse 2 describes the transfiguration of Christ in some detail. It says at least two things about his appearance, does it not? The first was that it says his face shone like the sun. So this is the first thing that was different about him. Before they got to the mountaintop, his face was pretty normal like yours and mine. And then up there, his face begins to shine like the sun. That's what shone means. Uh, and I would say his countenance began to shine uh, with an intensity equal to that of the sun. That's what took place. And I think that uh, if you've read the Bible at all or even heard some of the stories of the Old Testament, the first thing that would come to mind would be Moses. Moses had some kind of an experience here where his face emanate, well it didn't emanate it, but it reflected the glory of God. He had seen the glory of God manifested, Moses did, speaking of him so we can build some context here. He had seen the glory of God manifested in the supernatural works of God, like in the burning bush or the parting of the Red Sea, etc. But Moses, it's really interesting, Moses had seen God at work and seen the glory of God manifested in all these works, but he wanted to see more of God's glory. In fact, that became a heart cry of his and a prayer of his. In Exodus 33, Moses pleaded with God to show him more of his glory. I've seen your glory in how you defeated the chariots of Egypt. I've seen your glory in how you delivered the people out of there. I've seen your glory in a bush that's on fire that was never consumed. That's a pretty interesting thing that took place there. I've seen it manifested, but I want to see it more. I want to see more of your glory. And I think that that should be our heart cry as Christians. I want to see more of your glory, God. And what happened in Exodus 33? He's crying out to see more of God's glory. I've seen it in all these things, but I want to see it in, a, in maybe a different way, in a real way here. And God obliged him and placed him in the cleft of a rock and covered his face. It literally says God took his hand and covered. God has hands apparently, or can, takes his hand and covers Moses' face. Why? So that he would not die as he looks upon God. Anyone who sees the face of God immediately dies. That's how holy, amazing, glorious God is. So he covers his face so that he would survive. That's just how glorious God is. And then he passed by Moses. As Moses was in the cleft of the rock and his face was covered, he passed by and removed his hand so that Moses could behold his back. He could see maybe the, the train of his robe or his backside as he passed by this image of God. All Moses saw was a backward glance of the glory of God. But when he came down from Mount Sinai, his face shone with such intensity that he had to veil it. He had to cover it. Why? Because it terrified the people of Israel. He came down, his face was just glowing, reflecting this glory of God, and it was just a frightening sight for you know, a couple of million Israelites. They couldn't behold God's glory emanating from his face because it was just something insane to see. The glory of God that radiated in such a brilliant way from the face of Moses was a reflected glory, an echo of God's glory. It did not come from Moses himself. It wasn't coming from within Moses. It came upon Moses and then reflected like a mirror. It came from the back of God, if you will. But on the Mount of Transfiguration, not Sinai, maybe Tabor, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Christ did not simply reflect the glory of God. The brilliant light that shone from his face actually emanated from within him. It came from him. 
He was the source of the light. Moses wasn't. The, there's a parallel, but Moses was not the source of this glorious light. But in Jesus' case, he was the source producing the light. It was his own origin. It was his own being where this divine, his own divine nature that was creating this light to emanate. Rabbis call this glory generating light Shekinah which basically means divine visitation. Have you ever heard of the phrase the Shekinah glory of God or the Shekinah glory cloud or any of those sorts of things? Those are kind of old Hebrew terms. Primarily we see them, in fact the word never even appears in the Old Testament, but it's a phrase that the rabbis used to, uh, they coined it to uh, express a divine visitation and the glory of God. The Shekinah glory is what we're talking about here. When God visited Israel in the Old Testament, this Shekinah glory was present. We see it during the Exodus, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of, uh, I was going to say flower, the, pil <laughs> the pillar of fire by night. You've read that and seen that. We see it at Mount Sinai when God uh, showed his back to Moses, right? The Shekinah glory of God was there. And we see it in, in Solomon's temple when the cloud enveloped the holy place. And that's where the priests had to leave the holy place because they couldn't be in there when the Shekinah glory of God came in. MacArthur wrote, as with the Shekinah manifestations of the Old Testament, God here portrayed himself to human eyes in a form of light so dazzling and overwhelming that it could barely be withstood. So what happened at Sinai and in these Old Testament uh, scenarios was happening here on the Mount of Transfiguration with the exception that the light was coming directly from the divine Son of God. Instead of being reflected, it was being emanated from him. So it's kind of a similar thing. There's a parallel. God's glory is so great that it produces the purest light and that is what we see emanating from Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity. In the future, God's eternal kingdom, the new heavens, new earth, and new Jerusalem, those places or this kingdom, which kind of is all of this together, this newness, all of this together, will have no sun, will have no moon, which in some ways reflects this. It does. It reflects the sun's light and puts light on earth. will have no stars. Why? Because the glory of God and the lamp of the Lamb will provide the light. You can read about that in Revelation 21, verses 23 through 24. So, you know, in the, in the, in the new heavens and earth, the new kingdom which God is, is, is bringing to earth in the, in the future, and hopefully the, sooner than later, there will be no light emanating or generating resources hanging in this, in this you know, out in space. It will be lit by the lamb, by the light of the lamb, it says. And I think that's an interesting phrase. And it will be lit by the glory of God. God's glory will illuminate everything in the purest light. It's just going to be something incredible. And Revelation just talks about this. I love it. So the first thing that we see in this transfiguration is that his face shone with the light that is so bright and so intense and so pure and so beautiful that it really rivals that of the sun. Number two, and I would say it's beyond the sun because it's coming from the sun, right? Second thing that we notice about the transfiguration, his clothes became white as light. His clothes became white as light. Jesus' garments became absolutely white. 
without a fleck of gray, without any sort of blemish, or the most microscopic stain. In Mark 9, 3, it says, His clothes became exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. So this, his clothes being illuminated with this sheer perfect whiteness without any gray or anything, it is the direct result. The clothes weren't doing these things on their own. It is the total and absolute direct result of what's emanating from his face. His face illuminated his clothing in such a way that his clothing became of the purest white. That's what's happening here. And I thought, well, I'm sort of interested in the color white here for whatever reason. I don't know. I'm kind of an investigator when I look at God's word. And I thought, well, what colors appear more in scripture? Like, you know, blue, red, yellow, gold, you know, purple, white. And so I did a little investigation. And the color white is mentioned in the Bible more times than any other color. 42 times in the Old Testament, 26 times in the New Testament. And, and the interesting thing about it is, is that it is almost always, unless it's in reference to something else that is white, it is almost always generally associated with purity and righteousness. White is the color that represents righteousness or being right with God. White is the color that represents purity. And you can read about that in Psalm 51, Ecclesiastes 9, Isaiah 1, Matthew 17, right here, Revelation 3. It's all over the place. The colors red and black are generally associated with impurity, unrighteousness, and death. But white, it almost always, unless it's being used in reference to something else, it characterizes righteousness, purity, those sorts of things. The author of Hebrews captured... Uh, in, in a really cool way, what we are seeing in the text that we're looking at here, Hebrews 1.3 says, Christ is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. And I find that to be really interesting that you know, we're seeing this glorious Christ emanating this light and the presence of God through his own divinity. And the author of Hebrews says, well, Christ is the brightness of God. He is the express image of his person. Now, up to this point in his life and ministry, Christ had kept his resplendent glory veiled and hidden from those around him, hidden even from his own disciples. I'm not saying that he hid his glory completely from everyone, because when he worked miracles and all these things, his glory was there, but his resplendent, reflected, emanating glory, his glorious appearance, that he kept veiled, that he kept shrouded, that he kept hidden from those around him, even from the inner circle guys, Peter, James, John. But at the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John were given a glimpse of it, and it literally blew their minds. They're blown away at this point. The apostle Paul also encountered Christ in the same way on the Damascus Road. And what happened when he saw this brilliant, pure white Christ? What happened when he saw Christ in his glory, right? Because this is after the ascension. What happened? He was blinded for three days until Ananias restored his sight. And, and I was thinking, well, why didn't Peter, James, and John get totally, you know, their eye sockets get completely blown out here? 
Well, because the purpose of them being there is to witness Christ and his glory, not to blind them so they have no idea what happened. And we'll get to that. But the Apostle Paul had seen Christ in this way too. Now look at three, right? So those are the two things that happened. His face shone with the purest white. His clothes became of the purest white. Verse three, and behold, there appeared to them, okay, speaking of the disciples, to them, Moses and Elijah, talking with him, speaking of Christ. So Peter, James, and John saw more than Christ's glory, right, in this moment. They also saw Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. What a sight this must have been. Moses was supremely, supremely God's man. Besides the Lord Jesus himself, he he was arguably, could be arguably, the greatest leader in human history. Better than Alexander the Great, better than, than all of them. Just an amazing leader, probably the great, next to Jesus, the greatest leader in human history. He had led an estimated two million rebellious, faithless people out of Egypt into the wilderness where they wandered together for 40 years while God raised up a more obedient and manageable generation. Now, you just think about that right there. If you're a parent and it's Mother's Day, hallelujah, and you get, you have a couple of kids, you got a little gaggle. And you have one unruly kid. How difficult is it to manage that child and to keep everything together for your family? It's pretty tough. You think about that. Dude had two million of them. I'm out. You're on your own. Right? I mean, think about that. You got to be an amazing, amazing leader, spirit-filled, led, amazing leader to be able to lead two million whiny bratty we want to go back to egypt are we there yet you know i mean this is insane leadership skills you know i have an interaction with one difficult person i throw in the towel peace out you know i mean just think about it before the people of israel uh, before the people of israel had formal prophets right before they were given formal prophets if you want to call it that moses was a kind of prophet bringing them god's word before they had formal priests right before the priesthood was established through moses's brother moses was a kind of priest mediating between them and god and boy did he have his hands full because he was constantly saying god do not destroy them I know that they're whiny, I know they're bratty, I know they're rebellious, I know they're idolatrous. Don't kill them, they're your people. What will the nations think if you wipe out your own people? He pleaded with them endlessly. He was a priest to them. Before they had formal kings, Moses was a kind of king, ruling them in God's name. He was a far better king than Saul, that's for sure, and many of their other kings. Now, Elijah, because Moses is here, right, in this transfiguration, he's there speaking with Jesus. Elijah was arguably, or is arguably, the greatest defender of the law in the Old Testament, making him really the greatest prophet in in such a way. This prophet was zeal personified, a godly man, literally with unmatched courage, boldness, and fearlessness. Did he have his weaknesses? Yeah. Yeah. But for the most part, this guy was about as steadfast a prophet as you can get. He did not flinch. He did not budge. He had a heart for God. He walked with God. And and more than any other Old Testament saint, he was the instrument of God's miracle-working power. This guy was working miracles left and right. He was the preeminent prophet of God. 
He really was. As no others, Moses and Elijah represented the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets, right? Because that's what's going on here. Moses represents the law because God gave the Israelites the law through him. And Elijah represents all the prophets who ever came. All of them. So you've got kind of these two heads. One who is kind of the head over the law and one who is the head of the prophets and all prophecy. That's why these figures are there. That's, that's what's so significant about these two individuals. Their presence at the transfiguration, it was so significant in that it affirmed that Christ is not only the glorious son of God and the chosen one of Israel, but also the one whom the law and all the prophets point to. Jesus said that himself. The law and the prophets point to me. Man, you said, Jews, that you have studied the law over and over and over, and you should know that they point to me, and yet you don't understand that. You do not have me. The law and the prophets point to Christ. We have the two representatives of those two things there authenticating the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not to mention that the glowing that was coming, the, the light that was coming from Jesus was also authenticating who he is, the divine, the son of God. And what does it say that these two amazing individuals, two of the greatest individuals in history, Moses and Elijah, what does it say that they were doing? They were talking with him, talking with Jesus, talking with Christ. What were they talking about? Because that's what I want to know. What, what, what were you all discussing? What were you talking about? Now, in our account, it doesn't say. It doesn't say in Matthew what they were talking about. It just says they were talking. Matthew didn't include the details. I think that uh, because Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience, they would understand who those two people represented and what they might have been talking about. Now, to us Greek types, we're not Jewish people. I don't know if you have a Jewish background. Hallelujah if you do. If you don't, what would they have been talking about? I don't know. Now, the cool thing is, is that Luke's account of this event gives us a clue. It provides some detail. In Luke chapter 9, verse 31, it says they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish, accomplish, not leave. He was about to accomplish his departure at Jerusalem. Those are all the details we need. We can, we can disseminate what was going on. We can, we can discern what they were talking about based on that statement alone in 931 of Luke. In the Greek... Departure has to do with, this is going to get you, exodus. In fact, the Greek translation of departure is the word exodus. So departure has to do with an exodus. Now, now what comes to mind here? The Israelites being led out of Egypt by Moses, right? Moses led a, a, a host of captives out of captivity, out of Egypt, towards the promised land. Unfortunately, many didn't make it because they were belligerent and all that. They had to die off. The generation, the rebellious generation, died off in the wilderness, and God raised up a faithful generation, and they went off into the promised land. And Moses didn't even make it there himself, right when they're about to cross the river. Think of all of that. Think of Moses. Think of Egypt. Think of the Israelites, the Exodus, right? In a similar way, Jesus was about to lead sinners out of captivity. There's the parallel. He would do this in Jerusalem at the cross through his death where he died to do what? 
set the captives free. Isaiah 61.1. Luke 4.18. This is amazing. These two men, one of them who was directly involved in the exodus of old, were there talking to Jesus about his exodus, leading sinners out of captive sin and out of the bondage of sin and out of the devil's kingdom, or if not kingdom world, the prince of the power of the air. In a similar way to what Moses did, Jesus was about to lead out in a spiritual way the captives who were held in bondage and in sin. Moses and Elijah were discussing the ultimate exodus. The ultimate exodus. The very exodus that the first exodus points to. They weren't let out of captivity in Egypt just for the purpose of getting them out of that terrible place. Because they wanted to go right back. They were let out of there as a foreshadow and a forepicture. A future image of the ultimate exodus that Jesus did at Calvary. And that's what they were there talking with him about. I just think it's amazing. Moses and Elijah were discussing the ultimate exodus, deliverance from sin, redemption with Christ just before he entered Jerusalem where he would accomplish it at Golgotha. He would depart through his death in a sense and return in the tomb and rise and seal that deliverance, seal that exodus. That is what they were talking about. Pretty amazing. Now look at verse 4. And Peter said to Jesus, what a time here real quick to open your mouth. Right? I just it's, feel it incumbent upon me to speak. And Peter said to Jesus, he's overwhelmed, he's blown away, right? It's one of those moments. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. <laughs> John and James were probably like, duh. If you wish, if you'd like for me to, if you'd wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, if you go back over and look at Luke's account, Moshe and Eli uh, Moshe. Moses and Eli, you just put their names together, you get Moshe. You just, you nail two birds with one stone. These two guys were leaving. They were trying to get out of there. They were going back to, back to the, you know, back to heaven. They were, they were leaving. And he's like, hey, 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 let me, let me make some tents. Now, Peter was completely overwhelmed. Two of his Old Testament heroes were standing there talking with Christ. He had never seen them before just just think of somebody who you truly admire it can be a religious figure or not a religious figure they're dead they're gone you've read their biographies you love their work you love their movies or whatever and here you are standing in their presence and you're thinking this is good for my wife Zelda and Scott Fitzgerald she's in their presence she'd be like Phil who I'd be like I think it's really good maybe we ought to make a couple of extra bedrooms and have them move in then again, they were so dysfunctional, it would be a bad idea. They were, you know, gin guzzlers. You know, I mean, just think about it right now. You're in the presence of someone who you truly admire. Maybe it's a biblical figure or whatever. And then that's what's going on with Peter. So it's kind of understandable why he's acting like a goofball. He had only read about these guys in the Torah, and yet they were there in the flesh, in a sense. 
I think they were in their flesh. I don't know. Were they, were they images of them? I think they were there in their flesh. And, 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 and if not, somehow they were there. And his mind was completely blown. His heroes are here. And so what does he do? He, he goes over and he interrupts their conversation. <laughs> Lord, this is really cool that we're all gathered here tonight. Or today on this mountaintop. And I'm thinking Moses and Elijah were probably thinking, who is this guy, Jesus? Who is this, who is this man, you know? Jesus might have replied, oh, oh that's, just, that's just Peter. He's, you know, rather impetuous and, and has a made a, he's made a poor habit of speaking out of turn, as you can see. I don't think he said that at all, but I'm just, I like it. That's just Peter. You know, he's that guy that's at the party and you're having this deep, intimate, con- inter- you know, intimate conversation or you're doing something and you're with somebody and then, hey, hey, you know, he's that guy. And you're like, way to blow the moment, dude. You're a moron, you know? That's what he's doing. And that was actually my entire career at Big Valley. It was. Amen. It was. There'd be something going down and like, hey, you know, and it's like, sorry, you know. It's, you know, just, I had the, the foot and mouth disease, just like Peter. I'm impetuous. I mean, Peter, I, I'm Peter. I am, believe me. I'm Simon Peter. I'm Peter. I'm Simon. He was called by all sorts of names. When he was acting like a moron, he was called by his old name, Simon. When he was acting good, he was acting like Peter, his new name. When he was totally confused, Jesus called him Simon Peter. You're a little good and you're a little bad, you know? I'm Phil. I'm Philip. I'm Phil! You know, I'm all that. And he's speaking out of turn here. He's, he's talking to them. He interrupts the conversation between these three men, the most amazing men of history. And he comes in and, hey, I think it's a good thing that we're here. Let me build some tents. Uh, Luke 9.33b says, he did not know what he was saying. <laughs> so if you're wondering why he said, you know, let's, this is good, let's build some tents, because I have no idea what he's talking about. Apparently, Luke's account says he had no idea what he was talking about. He was just clueless. Any other clueless people in here? You just blow a moment? Yes, thank you. There's one. Veronica was humble enough to admit it. She goes, and she bit her lip, which means she knows. She goes, yeah. Right? So what is he talking about here? Well, he didn't know what he was talking about. I'll build a tent for each of you. For each of you, right? What was he up to? What was he thinking? Uh, clearly, he wasn't thinking clearly, but why did he offer to make tents? Because there has to be something significant here. He's trying to communicate. So he doesn't know what he's talking about, but he's trying to offer something, right? Well, there are a bunch of possible explanations as, as to what he was talking about here. I'll give you three quick ones. Some say uh, why he was talking about building tents for them, for each of them, their own separate tents. Some say that it was because Peter did not want the three of them to leave or to depart, or at least the other two to depart. Like this was Peter's heaven moment. If, if, we, could just, if we could just keep what's going on here right now, I, I, I would like for this to last for all eternity. I got Jesus, that's my man. I got my two heroes here, that's good. I got the two Putz brothers, they're okay, they can hang out, right? I mean, this is like, they're thinking, people are saying, uh, scholars are saying that he's just like, he doesn't want this moment to end. And, and Luke's account says that, that Moses and Elijah were on their way out. So it's like, hey, 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 don't leave. I'll build you a tent. You know? 
he wanted them to stay on the mountain indefinitely. Just the six of them forever. That was Peter's idea of heaven at that moment. And you know what? This was the second time that he attempted to stop the Lord from going to Jerusalem to suffer, die, and rise. It's the second time he did that. He might have had good intentions, but boy, what a fool. He did this back, and we read about it in Matthew 16, just a chapter back, in verses 21 to 23, where he said, no, 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 Lord, no, you mustn't go to Jerusalem to die. I won't let it happen. See, Jesus, during his ministry, at certain points, started to articulate the gospel in that I got to go to there, I got to go to Jerusalem, I got to suffer, I've got to be betrayed, I've got to suffer, I've got to be beaten to a pulp, I've got to die on a cross, I've got to rise. That's the gospel, right? In a nutshell, he began to articulate it. The, the, the disciples didn't really understand what he was talking about. And at some point, Peter says, I don't, I'm not going to let that happen. I love you. You're my pal. I don't want that to happen. He tried to stop Jesus from going to do it. And what did Jesus say to him? It's okay, Peter. I got to do it. Uh, no, he said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You just want this to happen. But if I don't go and hang and die, you're without hope. You don't understand what you're talking about. And so what's he doing here? He really, literally is trying to stop Jesus from doing what Jesus said over and over he had to do. I know it feels good, Peter, right now, but it's going to be better in the future. Trust me. So that's the first explanation. Second, some say that it is because Peter was thinking in terms of a military exercise. Before a battle, kings would often meet with their military officials in tents to discuss their strategy and battle plans. Peter may have reckoned that this was the moment for Jesus, the Messiah, to gather in tents with his generals, Moses and Elijah, to strategize for how to defeat Rome and establish God's kingdom. Now, you might be thinking, that's got to be the most far-fetched opinion of at least the two that we're talking about here. But it's not when you consider the Jewish mindset of Messiah, which is he's only a conqueror. If he were to come back during the Roman occupation, as he did, if, as he, if he were to come during the Roman occupation in the Jewish mind, it would be, he's come here to kick Rome's butt. Because all they saw was a general. All they saw was one who came through the line of David, and David was a butt kicker. And they, they would think to themselves, if you are truly Messiah, at some point here, you're going to stop doing all this really neat stuff, and you're going to go down there, and you're going to punch Pontius Pilate in the face and you're going to kick Herod off the throne and you're going to assume that throne and establish your kingdom forever and everything's going to be amazing. That could have been gone through Peter's mind because that's the Jewish mindset then and unfortunately today. There's no room in their theology for a suffering servant, for the Isaiah chapter 53 Messiah. There's no room in their theology for that and those scriptures laden with it all. And, and you know what? They're not wrong because the second coming of Christ, that's what he does. He doesn't dethrone Rome. They're gone. He dethrones every throne in every nation and establishes his millennial kingdom for a thousand years. So the Jews have the right view, but they missed the first coming of Messiah. He came, and he had to come first to, to deal in terms of spiritual warfare, 
to deliver people spiritually. And when he comes the second time, he will deliver us. If we're still here or we will come back with him, he will deliver us physically and establish his kingdom. So he could have been thinking with that mindset, it's military, it's a military exercise. You guys need your tents. You got to plan how you're going to go down and, and go to Jerusalem and take them out. He could have been thinking that. Three, and I think this is the most, probably the, the most reasonable and logical explanation. Some say that Peter was preparing for the Feast of Booths. Every year, Israel spent a week dwelling in booths or tents to commemorate their exodus out of Egypt. Okay, it was like a holiday for them. It was a memorial to God for how he had preserved his chosen and redeemed people. You can read about it in Leviticus 23, 33 through 34. As we noted earlier, Moses and Elijah were talking with Christ about his exodus. Setting the captives free at Calvary, right? Which makes this view the most plausible. I think that's what he was trying to do. And, and some speculate that, it, you know, that, that, that particular holiday came around during a certain time of the year. And some are speculating that that was this time of year. Passover's not too far away. And so it might line up. So I think that's the, the explanation. Point is, Peter had completely missed the purpose of this visit with Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. He totally missed it. Whether he was thinking military, he was thinking Feast of Booths or anything else, he, he just, he's like me. What, what was happening in front of him flew right over the top of his head. He was like, duh, I don't know. Moses and Elijah had, had come to affirm Christ, but Peter's mind was fixed on other things. His suggestion was not only foolish, but in a way borderline blasphemous. First of all, we know he was trying to deter Jesus from going down there to do, and that was the second strike on that. Bad. But in a, with what he said, if you look at it carefully, he's flirting with blasphemy here. He placed Moses and Elijah at the same level with Christ. And Christ was in his transfigured state in all this glory. And what does he say? I'll build an equal tent for each of you. He put, them, he put Christ at the same level with these guys. Shouldn't have done that. And, and, and Christ was in Shekinah glory. The depths of Peter's foolishness, the depths of our own foolishness. What an imbecile. My son Colin would say, fail. I hear it in the house all the time, right? It says, hey, you know her? Fail. It was a fail, and we all fail now, here's the deal. His obvious low view of Christ earned him a sharp rebuke from heaven. Look at verse 5. He was still speaking when, behold, this is Peter that was still speaking, right? I think it's a good idea, three tents. <laughs> he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. While Peter was still flapping his chops, a bright cloud overshadowed all of them. What does this bright cloud remind us of? Again, Exodus 13, 21, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. 
This is the Shekinah glory of God manifested in this cloud, just as it had been during the Exodus. During the Exodus, God manifested himself in a cloud and accompanied the Israelites on their journey, protecting and leading them. At Mount Sinai, God appeared in a cloud and met with Moses for six days, Exodus 24, 16. This was the Shekinah glory cloud. The same bright light and glory was coming out of this cloud that had been coming off of Christ's face. We see the same thing happening with Christ in the transfiguration that's now happening in the cloud as the Father steps onto the scene. God manifested himself in a bright cloud or in a regular cloud and his presence made it bright and he overshadowed the mountaintop and then proceeded to speak. This is just like what happened at Sinai when he issued the law. What did God say? What did the Father say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This was both a correction and an affirmation. God basically told Peter, hush, keep quiet. Stop rambling about things that you do not understand. That's the rebuke that's, that's threaded through these words. And then God, right, when he says, listen to him, that's that silent moment. Hush, be quiet. And then God repeated what he said at Jesus' baptism, right? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What, did, what was God doing here? Not, he wasn't just silencing Peter. He was affirming his son and commanding those present to listen to him. He was affirming his son just as he had done during Jesus' baptism. It was as if God had said, Jesus said that he must go to Jerusalem to be betrayed, tortured, killed, and raised from the dead. Stop interfering with his plan and listen to him. God made sure that Peter, James, and John knew that Jesus was the one with authority, did he not? Listen to him. You don't talk, you listen to him. What he says is truth, and he must accomplish what he says. That is what God is saying here. How did the disciples respond? Look at verse 6. They continued to ramble on about tents. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, wrong, wrong translation. Uh, that was from the, the message. Uh, here it says, verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Peter, James, and John were absolutely terrified by the voice and presence of God. Notice their posture they fell on their faces. They prostrated themselves. They bowed down. This is reverence. This means reverence. When you take that position and bow, you're humbling yourself. You revere the one you are standing in front of, or the, who is standing in front of you, rather. When Isaiah realized that he was in the presence of God, he, he became aware of his own sin and unworthiness. Isaiah 6, 5. And, some, uh, and here's, here's some of the things that happen when you find yourself in the presence of God, right? You have the reverence, you have the terror. And then, like I said here, Isaiah, what happened to him when he was in the presence of God? He became aware of his own sin and unworthiness. In Psalm 16, 11, it says we read that uh, there is joy in the presence of God. Just as a quick side note, how do you know if you're in the presence of God? I'm talking about God the Father here. How do you know if you're in the Father's presence? Well, we see three or four things here. Terror? Reverence, a reverent response. You'll be made to realize your impurity and unholiness and sin. 
and also joy. All of those things should encompass an experience or being in the presence of God. That's how you know if you're in the true presence of God. Terror, reverence, awareness of your sin and unworthiness, and joy. And I would just say that there are churches out there that claim the presence of God all the time. If you come to our services, you're going to experience the presence of God in a way that's unprecedented. And these churches usually hit you with about a million songs. They do. They just got, you know, it's like the sermon's 35 minutes and there's, you know, an hour of music. And I'll tell you this, there is no shortage of joy in these churches, or at least some form of happiness. Everyone's smiling, everyone's excited, everyone's dancing around and doing all of these things. But what is short in these places of worship is terror. What is short in this, these places is reverence. In fact, they are characterized by mass amounts of irreverence, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, dancing around acting like circus performers. What else is missing in these churches? A personal awareness of sin and unworthiness. It's just joy, full bore. We're in the presence of God. We're in the presence of God. According to scripture, how is the presence of God described? It's not just joy. In fact, I think of R.C. Sproul when he talks of his conversion. He was at seminary when he was converted. (laughs) You'd think that he'd been converted beforehand. Many, many great men of the faith have been converted when they're doing their biblical studies so they can become a pastor. They thought they were converted, and then they realize they're not. And he tells a story late at night. It's snowing, it's raining, it's horrible, and he just senses that he needs to go into the chapel on his school campus. And he goes into it, and it's dark, and there are lightning flashes. And he says, the presence of God was so heavy. I was like Isaiah. I was undone. All of my sin came before me, and I was terrified and he talks about how he was like in his bathrobe and he was never the same so are these churches that boast about the presence of God legit do they bring people into the presence of God not according to scripture if all that's there in these services is pure elation joy and happiness what they're doing is they're painting a picture of your future glory in heaven because that's all you'll have there but on this side As wretched, even sinners saved by grace, the holy presence of God is a frightening thing to behold because he is that awesome. What these congregations are likely experiencing is a type of adrenaline overload which is induced through various means such as a lot of music, a lot of chanting, a lot of repetition. What that does is it's It almost becomes like a workout routine. Yeah, yeah, and you have this peak of adrenaline. And and this adrenaline dumps into your body and you just, and then what happens? The pastors say, we have been in the presence of God. No, actually you were at Planet Fitness for an hour. There's a difference. Because if you had been in the presence of God, you would not be behaving the way you would. You might at some point in the service, but you certainly would have been reverent. You certainly would have been terrified if you're in the true presence of God. And by these standards, I often wonder how many times are we in the presence of the Father in this place in such a way that we are undone. And it it scares me to think that it's not often enough because I want to be in his presence. 
7, verse 7. Look at how uh, the Lord, now keep in mind, these guys are horrified. Look at how Jesus um, came to them and how he calmed them in verse 7. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. Oh man, this is good. Jesus' first actions and words after his mighty display of splendor were those of gentle, loving care. Knowing the great fear of his beloved companions, he came to them and touched them. I love that. It's not just that he spoke, but he gently touched. You're not going to be consumed right now. You should be, Peter. (laughs) But you're not. It's okay. Take my hand. From blazing glory to sincere tenderness is our God. You see, if we flip them, if we flip the blazing glory and tenderness, if we flip those around, we have the first and second coming of Christ. His first coming was characterized by tenderness. He came as the suffering servant and and the Lamb of God to be sacrificed for your sin, for mine. His second coming will be characterized by blazing glory. He will be a general. He will be a soldier. He will come, more than that, he will come as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords, riding through the clouds with his armies to conquer the world and establish his millennial kingdom. What a day that'll be. Look at his glory in this passage. Look at his tenderness. How can someone so glorious be so tender? And how can someone who is so tender be so glorious? Such is the person of Christ. Such is God. After touching them, he said, rise and have no fear. This was his way of saying, the moment of terror has passed. It's time to get back to work. Let's go. Take a look at our last verse, verse 8. We're almost finished. And when they had lifted up their eyes, right after he touched them and spoke tenderly to them, when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Moses, Elijah, and I think for their own sanity, most importantly, the glory cloud, were gone. The Shekinah glory was off the face of Christ. The Shekinah glory manifested in the cloud. God, the Father's presence, were gone. They vacated. And all they saw standing there, the only person they saw standing there was their Messiah, was Jesus. And I I would suspect that they were relieved. Closing. What does the transfiguration have to do with Christ's work on our behalf. Because that's what we've been studying, right? Maybe you haven't made any of the parallels, as I hadn't until I discovered a very important verse. We've been talking about the work of Christ on our behalf. What does the transfiguration have to do with that? How does that play into that? Does it have anything to do with his work at all? Yes, the transfiguration shows us uh, several very, very important things. We looked at the first one, which is the glory of Christ. That would be the preeminent point 
That would be the primary point. The transfiguration is about the glory of Christ, seeing Christ as he is in his fullness, not just as a man who got hungry and tired and sad, but as God, glorious, brilliant light. That is what we have been studying this morning. And the second, I would say one more, is like it. The transfiguration also shows us our future glory. How do I know this to be true? There are a number of passages that make it absolutely clear. 2 Corinthians 3.18 would be one of the major ones. The Apostle Paul wrote, And we all, speaking of all believers, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Wow. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let me, let me just try to unpack quickly before we end. Let me try to unpack what the Apostle Paul has just said, okay? If we were to behold Christ right now, we would see him in brilliant splendor, seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling the universe. That is what he is doing right now. Right now, he looks as he did during the transfiguration, fully man, fully God, pure and absolute light emanating from his face, his clothes brilliant, no launderer could ever get that white. Clorox, sorry, if you were to behold him right now, you would see him as these disciples saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now here is what is even more mind-blowing than, than that, and this is what Paul is headed to here. In this passage, in the passage I just read, the Apostle Paul wrote that we are being transformed into the same image. What same image? The same image that the disciples saw during the transfiguration and the same image the Apostle Paul saw on the Damascus Road. The glorious image of Christ. In the future, we too will be something to behold because we will radiate the light and the glory and the brilliance of Christ. You know, this is why the angels, it says in 1 Peter, this is why the angels never tire of looking into the gospel. They cannot get, and they are superior to us in many ways, but they cannot get their mind around how good we, saved sinners, have it. When Peter, James, and John witnessed the transfigure of Christ and beheld his glory, they also beheld their future glory and the future glory of every follower of Jesus Christ, every saint. Can I get a witness? Does that mean that we'll be made gods? No. Don't go with the Mormon thing. We don't become God. The book of Revelation repeatedly, repeatedly shows the saints in this glorious state. Over and over it talks about how they are clothed like Christ in brilliant white. Revelation 19, 14, it describes the saints as arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. 
Last Sunday, we, we looked at temptation in the wilderness, and I said that Christ maintained his righteousness, which is our righteousness. I've got a new one for you. At the Mount of Transfiguration, Christ displayed his glory, which is our future glory. So what does the transfiguration have to do with Christ's work on our behalf? First, the transfiguration proved that Jesus is God and thus legitimized his work. Redemption had to be accomplished by a God-man or by the God-man. Couldn't just be God, couldn't just be man. Had to be the combo. The transfiguration proved that Christ is the God-man. Secondly, the transfiguration shows us the final result of Christ's work. It shows us what the imputed righteousness of Christ leads to. Our glory. There it is. 